主門葛藤主第十五足広報風白そう創山にとっていわく雪千山の王何としてか広風白なる三にわくすべからく一の意を知るべしそういわくいかがなるかこれ一の意三にわく正山の色に出せす Entangling Vines Case 15 One peak is not white A monk asked 正山本弱 Snow covers a thousand mountains. Why is one peak not white? Sozan said, You should know the true difference in the non white peak. The monk asked, What is the true difference? Sozan answered, It does not descend to being the color of other mountains. Here we are on the third day of our Huon session. In Los Angeles, the weather is not much to talk about because it's always sunny. But as you might have encountered in your sitting, there might be dry spells, there might be some clouds, pure sunshine, and precipitation. Sometimes it even rains. In this practice, inevitably, If you engage in it for an extended time, the rain will come, the water will flow. And there are many reasons for that. The reasons might be resolution of something we have been holding on to for way too long that is being shaken loose by this practice. Or at times, the pure gratitude of having encountered. Teachings like this, or the gratitude of being alive, joyful tears. Even though this might seem very, very strict, what we are doing here, what comes, comes. And if tears come, let them stream, let them wash away, let them cleanse, let them sparkle in the splendor of gratitude. All expression is welcome. One of the really important things we have to become aware of is that Zen practice is not a clinical undertaking. Zen practice often, we think of Zen as this wonderful, clear, and pure, crystal like radiance, seeing through everything with the sharpness of the sword of Manjushri, of Monju Bosatsu. The sword that cuts off delusions. But just that wisdom is only one side of what the Buddha taught, 
what all the ancestors taught and what we have experienced by having studied with Joshu Roshi. Even though there is this clarity of wisdom that in itself might be as cold as the space between the stars, between the galaxies, completely clear and unencumbered by anything, any speck of dust. But it can also be cold and frigid like outer space. The universe does not care about us. We have heard in the teachings of Tathagata Zen and of many other Zen masters that this activity of Dharma, the activity of time, works without will and desire. It has no intention. It has no goals. It has nothing that pushes us this way or that way. It is that activity that Sosan Ganchi, the third ancestor, speaks about in the opening of Shinjin Mei on believing in mind or faith in mind. The highest path is not difficult, just beyond picking and choosing. So the activity of Dharma does not pick and choose. It just works as it works. Speaking about myself, when I learned about this, it was an unbelievable relief. I found this truth to be very comforting because it takes out any kind of personal ties to what happens, any personal ties that the universe might be against me if something bad happens to me. On the other hand, we are really not special if something great happens to us. It just happens. There's no intent, no goodwill and no ill will. And as you might remember from your own practice in the beginning, when we hear teachings like that, we tend to take and adopt that point of view of the universe. Oh, everything that has to do with human desire and so on, it's all rubbish. The universe does not care about things like that. So what if people starve on the other side of the planet? The universe doesn't care about it. This is just the activity of Dharma. But if you recall the case that we spoke about in the first two days, there is this complete return, a completion of a full circle, and looking just at the activity of wisdom, at wisdom as this cold, monolithic, clear thing, is only half or partial. It is incomplete. It is incomplete because it is one-sided. We can't deny that we live in a world of separation, in the world of human consciousness, what we manifest is called the human condition. And as you know from your own lives, we all know that there is heartache. There are moments where we firmly believe that the universe has it out for us or somebody else. There are preferences that we care about 
They are many things, and we do feel bad when we hear about other human beings starving. We even feel bad about seeing a little raccoon trapped in a cage. Well, the good news here is it was let go. Now, in the human world, we cannot use that absolute point of view to just ignore the incompleteness of this world. We know it is incomplete. We are really aware of all the shortcomings that exist in this world. The question is, how can we use our wisdom, the wisdom of this tradition, to actually make a difference in a world that, from the absolute point of view, again, a one-sided point of view, suffering doesn't matter. But seeing it from the human point of view, suffering does matter. Racism matters. The environment matters. Sexism, gender discrimination, whatever you want to put here, all these so-called ills of society do matter. In the realm of wisdom, no precepts have to exist. But in the world of human beings, precepts come to life and precepts are postulated to give us some kind of a guideline on what is wholesome behavior and what is harmful behavior. And there's a really, really important point that I wanted to share with you that goes back to one of the earlier students of Joshu Doshi. It is something that my very first Zen teacher, Seiyun Genro Osho, taught us, and that I found very helpful in looking at what is going on in this human world. I don't know if you have ever met Genro when he was around here, but he came in the early 70s up to Mount Baldi Zen Center, and his name was Herbert. Herbert. He came from Philadelphia where he had spent some time being a painter and he painted portraits of people. First portraits of regular people but then he became somewhat known and the wealthy did want to be painted by him. He made a good amount of money doing that and when he came to live here with Joshu Roshi he actually used some of the money and he bought a house in this neighborhood. Those who just came fairly recently might not remember we used to own a house called Genroan. Genroan, across the street on 25th Street, Genro donated it. He bought it for Joshu Roshi. Genteyan probably was given by Gente Sandy Stewart. So Genro Herbert started at Mount Baldi Zen Center, and many of the rules that we find there go back to him. Joshu Roshi just told him, you make this work. And sometimes quite interesting rules come from very different sources than we think they came from. Many of the things that we believe to be Japanese were just made up or just were transferred from some other places. For example, the story I know from Genro, how he told it to me is like at the meals at Mount Baldi, when the condiments move along the table, you are not supposed to eat if the condiments are held by the person next to you on either side. And apparently Gendro created that rule going back 
to the behavior that he had learned in the mess hall of the German army. Be that as it may, here we have these rules and we have a specific tradition. And be it whatever it may be, it offers us the opportunity to take it as a gate, as a gate of being present, as a gate of being able to manifest ourselves alive and fully in whatever activity is called for. When it's time to move the condiments, we move them. And then we pay attention to the person next to us until they move them. Expedient means come in very, very many different forms and flavors. So now to what Genro taught us. He stayed at Mount Bali Zen Center for several years. He underwent Suiji Shiki here at Rinzaiji and then went for some time to be the vice abbot at Bodhimanda Zen Center. But in the late 70s and early 80s, Genro's father, who still lived in Vienna, Austria, started to need help. And it was time for the son to return to his city of birth, Vienna. And Genro returned to Vienna. He continued to practice and to offer practice. And that way, in Vienna, the Bodhidharma Zendo came into existence. Bodhidharma Zendo is still alive, of course. It is led now by Segaku Kigen Osho, who served as the vice abbot here at Rinzaji for many years, who many of us know. So when Genro taught us, he said, there are no evil people. There are only evil acts. And that is quite an eye-opening teaching. It means we have to get rid of the thinking that there are people of this or that quality, that anyone has any kind of inherent quality. It is the teaching of anatta, again, that there is no fixated self. It also means that we, all of us, carry in us the seeds for those acts. For wonderful acts of kindness, there are also no kind people. They are only acts of kindness. But we also carry within ourselves the seeds for discrimination, for hatred, for acting out of greed, anger, or delusion. And that is very important. It is important to recognize that in this practice, to look at ourselves very, very carefully and to learn to do it in a non-judgmental way. Again, judgment would put us in one of those categories. Oh, you are a terrible person. Oh, you are a nice person. You are a kind person. But that is not so. You might act kindly and manifest kindness at the time. And way too often we act based on unconditional affirmation of our I am self, and that often is harmful to others. What we do really matters, everything. We can't go through life on any kind of autopilot. Discovering the seeds, looking at them as they are without judgment, leads us to develop the ability to intuitively act, not judgmentally, but judiciously. 
at that moment, it becomes clear out of the moment what we ought to do. And the only way to answer to that is to actually do it. To not worry about, well, is this right? Is this wrong? Is there another thing that I could do? Already the opportunity has passed. And in our practice here, when the bell rings and Zazen is over and the clapper claps, we get up. We bow when it's time to bow, all together. This is the training of this behavior that I would call judicious action. So coming back to the human world, facing the world of wisdom and the coldness, the clarity of the wisdom. If you have been around long enough and you have heard several teachers, several traditions, several teachings, you might find that there are some people who are so clear and their dharma eye is open and unencumbered, but they're still cold. Or they have not clarified some of those seeds in this human portion, the messy portion of this world. And that is so. We all are like that. Again, let's not judge, but let us look at ourselves and judiciously work on that maturation that leads us to acting appropriately. To do as little harm as humanly possible. There is no way for us human beings to exist and not do harm. The very fact that we have to eat means that we are ingesting something that otherwise would live. If this is an animal that was slaughtered, if it's a crown of broccoli that was cut off, it is still life. We have to realize that our existence inherently is based upon the taking of life. So what should we do? Feel eternally guilty? That's one option. But then you have not come to the right place. There are better places that cater to your guilt. If you want to know where they are, I can tell you later. But here, you can't even, you don't even have the luxury to be guilty. The question becomes more than that. If I stop eating, I will perish. So what's the good in that? Then I am transgressing against that precept of ahimsa, of not doing harm. I would be harming myself. What can I do? And the only solution is the path of the bodhisattva. We do as little harm as we humanly can, and we vow to use the energy that we derive from the food, from the sunlight, from the air, from the love of other people, from whatever attention we receive, to give it away with the same open heart, with the same warmth, with the same generosity that the sun gives us by shining upon us. The rain extends to us by raining on the land and growing the food we eat. That is the path of Jihi, of the great compassion. And when we do that, 
then our heart will open. From the point of view of an ego entity, that is very scary. Because an open heart means vulnerability. An ego entity likes to be just as it is, not disturbed too much. Good feelings, yeah. Not good feelings, yeah. So an open heart and that warmth has to melt that ice block of wisdom and turn it into water, into rain, sometimes into clouds that cloud our Dharma eye. But again, part of the whole cycle that we heard in case number 14. Nothing wrong with clouds, nothing wrong with ice, nothing wrong with water. But learning to participate without resistance, but with awareness in that activity of Dharma, is what Zen practice can give to us. It's quite enriching when there is nothing in our lives that we can leave out. There is no place to hide from this. And you might have had fellow practitioners who were not ready to see that and stop practicing, but eventually they will come back. Zen practice is like, it's almost like a bloodhound, the Zen beast, I call it. Once it has your scent, even if you try to get away, it will find you. And that's a wonderful thing. You might practice for some time, and then something happens. I don't want to practice. Let me do something else. And just when you get to the point that you have almost forgotten about it, you walk around the corner and <laughs> there it is, yeah? There it is, and it bites you right in your calf. And you know, ah, yes, I cannot get away from it. And what is that? It's your own maturity. It's your own maturity and the responsibility that you have taken on by having seen a little bit into this human condition and how we can work with it in the most engaged way so that we make some contribution to this world that is into the direction that in the world we could call wholesome, helpful, healing, and often just present. So that was quite an excursion. But it's important that I have said that so that we all know not to restrict ourselves in Zen practice to some kind of sterile achievement of wisdom. Zen practice is about life. We are human beings. The idea of the absolute, the idea of wisdom is abstract. It's just something we can talk about. What really counts is the realization of that wisdom in how we live, in how we make relationship with this world, how we make relationship with our human condition and our fellow human beings. Now we have a case to look at, case number 15 of the Shumon Katoshu. The title is One Peak is Not White. <laughs> 
So as usual, let's look at the person who is appearing in this case. There are two people appearing here. One of them is a monk, and these monks never have a name, but they always have questions. A monk asked so-and-so. How many koans have you read that start, a monk asked so-and-so? And it seems like, yeah, that's an introduction. Don't even pay any attention to it. But sometimes it's really important to look and to investigate why would a monk or a nun, let's not be just restricted to one gender, how would a practitioner of either gender or mixed genders, whatever, what kind of state would they be in to ask a question like that? Zen monks don't go around just asking casual questions. They ponder and they wrestle with it. That's what we do at times. Because we all know that in this practice, and I said that to a couple of you when we met individually, struggle is necessary. There will be struggle in this practice. However, struggling will not get you there. So this monk, we don't know who he is, but he is a seeker. She asked a question from Sozan Honjaku. Well, who is Sozan Honjaku? Sozan Honjaku lived from 840 to 901, 61 years. And that was in China in the Tang Dynasty. He was born in Guangxu, in the Fujian province, as it's called nowadays. And when he was young, he studied Confucianism. There's a lot, a lot of influence of Confucianism, actually, in Chinese, Chan, and some of the parts of our modern tradition that was transmitted through Japan as well. He left home at age 19 to go to a monastery and to study Buddhism, and he was ordained at the age of 25. Lucky for him, the Tang Dynasty was basically the time when Chinese Zen flourished, and it was a high point for it. And he found a teacher. And his teacher was Tozan Ryokai. Tozan Ryokai lived from 807 until 869. And here's how they met. Most of these biographical points that we expound in these investigations of a case come from a work that's called the Keito Dento Roku, the record of the transmission of the lamp. What that means is how much is really true it's not a historical record, but let's look at it from the point of view of wonderful stories that were told over many, many years to capture the individuality of certain Zen teachers, to capture certain aspects of human nature. So upon meeting Sozan, Tozan said, what is your name? Careful when you're being asked questions like that, how you answer. So Sozan said, Honjaku. Tozan asked, so what is your transcendent name? And Sozan said, I cannot tell you. Tozan said, 
Why not? Sozan replied, there I am not named Honjaku. At this moment, Tozan recognized the potential of Honjaku to become a great Zen master. They stayed together for a long time, probably 30 years. 30 years is just the minimum that you have to stay with one teacher. And after those 30 years, you know what happens next? Another 30. And another 30. But after spending the time together, and after Sozan studied under Tozan, he became his Dharma heir and his successor. They were very, very close. If you look at the history of Zen and Zen masters, there are some couples of teacher and student that are really, really close. So Sozan, Tozan and Sozan is one of those pairs. Another pair is Nansen Fugan and Joshu Jushin. Nansen, you might remember, is the one who cut the cat in two, and Joshu is the one who asked about if a dog has Buddha nature, answered, no. So Sozan and Tozan were very, very close. When it was time to leave, upon departing from Tozan, the master asked, where are you going? Sozan answered, I am not going to a different place. Tozan, you are not going to a different place, but there is still going. Sozan said, I am going, but not to a different place. So this is Sozan Honjaku. When we deal with koans like this, we run into a lot of Chinese images, metaphors. In this case, the metaphor of snow and mountains, peaks. The monk asked Sozan, Snow covers a thousand mountains. Why is one peak not white? When you read about snow in the Zen context, it can have several meanings. One of them, if it is juxtaposed with something else that is white, it stands for differentiation. The picture would be the snowy egret in a field of snow. Both are white, but still they are different. Other koans speak about snow in a silver bowl. A silver bowl half filled with snow is polished so much that you cannot tell the difference where the snow starts, where the silver bowl begins. Snow as one of those events that happen in the life cycle of water, somewhere between liquid and solid ice. Snowflakes, again, a wonderful picture for the differentiation. No snowflake ever looks exactly like another snowflake that has ever existed. And as we know, no snowflake falls in an inappropriate place. So snow covers a thousand mountains. Individuality is covered over with snow. Some equalizer on top of all these mountains. Well, what could the mountain be? 
sitting on top of the sublime peak, Yakujo Eikai, one of his koans. We are all sitting on top of a sublime peak at the center of Mount Sumeru, at the center of consciousness of this world. Our individual ability to perceive, to cogitate, to intuit, is that mountain, is that mountain peak. So all those peaks are covered by snow. Why is there one that's not white? And Sozan sort of admonishes the monk, saying, you should know the true difference in the non-white peak is actually added by the translator. The original characters only say, you should know the true difference. And the characters for true difference, it is written E, which is difference, then the character for middle, Chu, or Naka. And then again, the character of difference. The difference within the difference. You should know that true difference. Apparently, the monk did not know what Sozan was pointing to. And he continued to ask, what is the true difference? And Sozan answered, it does not descend to being the color of the other mountains. Now, descent could mean different things, but we have to be careful in these translations of koans. And at times, it's really important to look at the characters, like in this case. For that reason, I also printed out in the original in case you want to take it home and look it up yourself. So descending here is the word not meaning originate from, but stoop down, degenerate, lapse into. So that peak that is not white, that is not covered by the snow, doesn't lapse into being the color of the other mountains. If you look at yourself as a mountain, what is Sozan telling us here? Even though you might see a lot of other people being this way or that way, being covered by snow, they all seem equal. Even though under that cover of snow, every mountain is individual. There is that one mountain that does not stoop, succumb to being any different than it is. This we could call the manifestation of suchness. Suchness, ta-ta-ta, as it is called in the original Buddhist language, ta-ta-ta. In Japanese, we say shinyo. Sometimes it's also called dharmata. Things as they are. And here closes the circle to the beginning of this talk when I talked about the universe not working with will and desire, not caring about humans, not not caring about humans, but where the truth and this moment unfolds continuously as the eternal truth of suchness, things as they are. You probably read somewhere in a Zen book that Doing Zazen, we learn how to do things as they are, to take them as they are, 
to perceive them and to become as they are. But what it ultimately means is we have to become as we are. When we weep, we weep. When we hurt, we hurt. When we sleep, we sleep. This formal session practice helps us with that. One final note. Tozan Ryokai and Sozan Honjaku are very important in the history of Zen. They got together and they founded a new school. And the school name represented how close they were because the first character is taken from the disciple's name, which is Sosan, so it is So. And the second character of the school's name is taken from the teacher's name, Tozan, To. So, To. The Soto Zen school was founded by Tozan Ryokai and Sozan Honjak. Tozan's five ranks, a teaching about how to manifest in the world, gave that school a very specific flavor. And we know that shikantaza, nothing but sitting, encountering that suchness, that tatata, shinyod, dharmata, is an important practice that is specifically taught in the Soto school. They have plenty of koans. Well, here is one, right, with Sozan in it. Where we have to be careful, again, is that we don't get stuck on the side of just sitting. And I'm pretty sure that Sozan and Tozan were very aware of it, hence the five ranks. Not being stuck in that cold world of wisdom, blissing out, but coming back into this non-clinical, dirty world where we have to deal with everything from starvation to bliss. This practice allows us by introspection, but also by application to develop the flexibility to become a shapeshifter that judiciously manifests itself in whatever is needed at the time. So let's give our best in these remaining days. We are halfway. But yet, don't forget, there is no halfway. It's only this. And this is where we meet Sozan. This is where we meet Joshu Roshi. It's just this. <laughs>